0: Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring John Beats and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing and the transformative power of nature. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of all our pages on the website, just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed about all the upcoming shows. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, FeetSpot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you shared our podcasts. And when you do so, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. There's a few links right there on our homepage, and you can... Uh, Share the knowledge out there to your friends. The content of this podcast is copywriting as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with John Beach about fly fishing and the transformative power of nature. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn, performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Cantui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's Douglas. Outdoors.com. Before we introduce John, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under John's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of John's latest book, Graced by Waters. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question or questions will be about something that John and I talk about during the show. So you submit your name and your answer and your location in that text box on our home page. It's the same place that you can ask questions during the show. So listen closely. Take good notes, and uh, at the end of the show, answer that question first correctly, and you'll win John's book. Our guest tonight is John Beach. John is perhaps best known in fly fishing circles for supervising all the fly fishing scenes on the Oscar-winning film A River Runs Through It, where he also conceived and executed the famous final fishing scene doubling for actor Brad Pitt by swimming a rapid while playing a fish. Beach has also appeared in or consulted on fly-fishing TV commercials for brands like MasterCard, Miller Beer, Mild 7, and T. Row Price, as well as the Netflix series Ozark. He has fished and worked in over 30 countries and half the states. John, a part-time fly-fishing guide in Aspen, Colorado, since 1984, is also known for writing, producing, and hosting, and directing nearly a dozen nonfiction TV series, on outdoor sports and adventure travel, as well as other film projects that have garnered over 20 awards. In the genre of fly fishing, John hosted and produced the tele Award-winning primetime TV series called Adventure Guides, Fly Fishing Edition, airing on NBC Sports and Outdoor Channel for five seasons. He also wrote, directed, and co-produced a digital video project called the ESPN Interactive Fly Fishing School and developed a feature-length documentary film on and sizzle reel about the life of legendary angler Joe Brooks, and that was released in 2019. Today, when he's not filming, teaching, or writing, or enjoying time with his family uh, and family in Pacific, Palisades, California, he can often be found guiding on the rivers of Colorado, fishing in Montana, or exploring new water along the, his local shores. John, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio.
1: Thank you so much, Roger. I have to say, it's a, quite an elaborate description of a fishing bum. <laughs> this is what I am. That's what you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's what my wife says.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: it's great to be on the show, and and I love that you're in Colorado because that's of course where I, uh, you know, started guiding and I went to University of Colorado there in Boulder where you are, and uh, I love Colorado. I'm, I'm I guide there every every year now in the summers, in the fall. Right. Just, uh, you just I you love guide Colorado.
0: The, the Aspen area, right? I do, I started
1: getting there and Yeah, I started getting there in, in uh, nineteen eighty four for uh, a shop called Fathergill's. So this Chuck Fathergill is one of the sort of legends of of the old timers uh, club. You know, there on the Roaring Fork and uh George Odier, who was a Frenchman who bought the store from Chuck. And uh yeah, that's where I, I sort of cut my teeth, uh, learned to guide some I don't want to say, but it's uh, over 35 years ago
0: now. Right, That's right. crazy. Yeah. Well, um, tell you what, you've had a long, long journey in the fly fishing world, um, and I'd like to take that journey. Have you guide us down that journey? And but before that, I'd like to know uh, and let the people know on our, our audience, you know, what you're doing now in the fly fishing world. Well, you know,
1: for me, the the book is really the thing that I have wanted to do for a long time, and, and I set out writing it back in about 2012 and thought it would take me a year, <laughs> and it took me eight, uh, and it's been quite a journey. But along the way, I've done some projects. I worked on a, a Joe Brooks film that came out. I was the initial person to help develop it, and I think I got some kind of a research producer credit, I think it was, on it. And uh you know it's still working on uh developing some films having to do with fly fishing and and also have a couple of of television series around it, one of which is based on the book grace by waters uh, you know and I think that what's happened for me roger is in terms of my fly fishing you know having you know or should say being able to guide i say being able to because my wife is god bless her, you know <laughs> we live here in Southern California in desert of Palisades. And, you know, being in Los Angeles is helpful in terms of being close to the production world, but the, um, of course, it, it, all our rivers are encased in cement. So I've become quite a aficionado of uh, saltwater fly fishing, which I do, um, in fact, it was just down there um, yesterday on the coast and, uh, you know, right you know, on the beach for species like corvina and uh, surf perch and uh, yellowfin croaker and halibut and, you uh, you know, so I spend my time sort of between two places, you know, between there in Aspen and here in Pacific Palisades, and I usually go up to guide somewhere at the end of June, the end of June, and last year I was there until um, mid October. So, so I, you oh, know, yeah. and I and I have the luxury of going back and forth, which is nice.
0: Yeah, and so you're still producing uh, films as well as working as a consultant on other productions, right? Is that in a I, nutshell I, you know, besides and, your writing that, which is kind yeah, of like going forward
1: exactly and that's really i think what's happening for me and i've been talking to kirk dieter who wrote a beautiful blurb you know, at the beginning of, of my book you know he read the book and really enjoyed it and uh if i might, i don't want to jump i guess jump into that too soon in terms of the book but i will say that it's, that's really where i'm going it's funny in production when you know i have a lot of executive producer credits on television shows and, and really what that means in television is that you're a writer. And uh, what, what I guess happened for me is some, I'd call it some disillusionment with the television business on some level. And of course with the digital transition that's gone on, I just decided that I really wanted to take the time to write a book. And I was so moved by you know, people like Norman MacLean and Duncan Knowles and, and other writers like Richard Banks, you know, who just write this beautiful prose and it's really how I first started to write, uh, was doing prose for magazines. And you know, I haven't done any magazine writing, although I hope to do that you know, starting this summer and in the fall. Although, quite frankly, when I'm guided, it's pretty much you know, six days a week, seven days a week. So anyhow, that's sort of where I'm, I'm headed because you know, there is, there's always been this relationship between my writing and my producing. And I just have been spending a lot more time writing because I really enjoy it, and it's really what I want to do. And, it's, it, and the book is sort of that first step in that direction. I would say is having a byline that's that's mine and mine only, because of course you, you know that I did another book in 2000 with Gary Hubble called Shadow Casting, and it was much more of a of a book for beginner fly fishermen. You know, it, it's called Shadow Casting: The Art or Introduction to the Art of Fly Fishing. It's been very hard to get. We're making a resurgence back on Amazon with the introduction of Graced by Waters. But so there's that connection I have. And, again, it's interesting because that book came out of the writings I did for the ESPN uh, project, which was really the first interactive uh, video product ever on fly fishing, which was launched in 1995, I believe. So Let's let's rewind a bit here. That's the relationship, yeah.
0: Sure, yeah. Let's rewind a bit. How did you get started in fishing? When did you start fly fishing? Did you have any mentors or did you learn on your own? Tell us a little background about how you got
1: started. Well, I have to say, Roger, I love that question because mentorship to me is something that is, in a lot of ways, a lost art today, especially with kids learning everything from computers. But there is something about passing down tradition that I, uh, I feel on so many levels is, is being lost today, and so really, my dad was. And that's when I say that you know the mentorship between a father and a son is so important. And my dad was really a great mentor in the outdoors for me, and God bless him. We would go up to the Sierras quite a bit on the weekends, you know, skiing in the winter and then uh, fly fishing. And, and I should say, actually, it wasn't fly fishing. I take that back. When it, when I was very young. We just you know we're fishing with salmon eggs in the in the little creeks, you know, and I was say five, six years old that's how i learned to that's how I learned to fish and i I still remember you know and I'm fond of saying this that you know I can literally see myself you know perched over this boulder on cottonwood creek and you know, first on my own, you know, I got up before anyone got out of, out of their tent, and I was so excited. I got up on my own. My dad had given me permission, and I got up, and I went out, you know, not very far from the tent, and I'd seen this place before, you know, in terms of reading water, and, um, you know, I put the salmon egg in there, and, you know, kind of dumped it in there, and my dad had shown me how to put it on, and I still remember that little trout, You know, to me it was a huge trout, you know, and, and, you know, taking my bait, taking the hook, and, you know, I pulled that thing up, and the electricity, you know, it still, I think, is running through my veins. Something happened in that moment, and I can smell the smell. I can hear the creek, and that's, you know, it's the universe's way of just saying, dude, you are, you know, you're screwed or you're blessed. And I choose to see that I'm blessed, although my book does talk about the screwed part, too. So, just uh, you know, it was just something that, that happened. And um, I, for so many of us, you know, uh, my brethren, uh, most many of whom are on this call, I'm sure, uh, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, you know, and it's just in our soul. And then there are those that I've taken the river and they just don't get it. Um, and then there yeah. are those that I've turned on, too, that are just it and that's why I love to guide, and I love to turn people on to the sport.
0: you remember who turned you on to fly fishing in particular?
1: Yeah. So the next phase was we moved back east to Greenwich, Connecticut, and my father took me up to the Orvis school. We did a three-day program up there. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't let, you know, very much in line with the, with the McLeans in terms of uh, he taught his sons. You know, they wouldn't let us, you know, put a fly on the end of, of the line, you know. To the end of the tippet, and for good reason because they said you know you got to learn how to you know not only how to cast but also you have to learn about the entomology and how to read water and we did that through textbooks and and videos and even back in that days i think they had in those days they had video content and pictures and, and a lot of classroom stuff and it wasn't until the end of the of the third day that we were able to go out onto this pond and I'll still never forget this friend who I I had made there. You know, he casts out and and hooks into the biggest fish in the pond. They we, we call her Bertha. You know, it turns out that he tail hooked it, but I didn't know the difference, and it didn't matter because here, here he was, you know, fondling this giant fish. And I swear to you, I think it was probably two years until I caught my first trout on a fly rod, and not for lack of trying. So it's, it's such a distinct difference between what we do now as guides, so many of us in terms of taking people out and getting their first fly, sorry, their first fish on a fly. Uh, You know, there's almost an expectation now in so many of these guide services that, you know, if you're going to go out, you're going to catch a fish. And it's just, it's just a sign of the times. Uh, And I try very much to talk to people about how that's not necessarily what fly fishing is about.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, well, and the, the clients pay good money to be out there for the day, you know, and uh, and we are tuned in nowadays to that uh, instant reward kind of thing, you know. Um yeah, very much. Yeah, and later on, after you fly fish, you realize that you could spend <laughs> years trying to catch that fish of a lifetime, <laughs> you know, when you start talking about permit or something like that that you, you have to work so hard for, so yeah yeah i I hear what you're saying and it, for, for i think for a lot of people they have to learn um how to deal with that you know be, it's it's not yeah the first time out, yeah you have high expectations of catching a fish, but as time goes on you, sure. you and I'm sure you'll address this later on when we talk about things, but um yeah, you get more in tuned and and you you enjoy the whole process rather than the than the than the reward at the end. But uh, when did you when do you think you, you talk about being addicted in uh, in your book to fly fishing, uh, or also you use the word passionate, which uh, many of us use? Um, w- when did that happen to you? Do you think?
1: Well, I think I'm I'm not kidding you. I think I realized it, uh, you know, subliminally uh, or subconsciously or unconsciously, if you want to look at it, in that moment that you know that I uh, you know the, the two stories I gave. You know, mm-hmm. I, I you okay. know, the, the, catching my first fish and then seeing somebody else catch a bigger fish than me. It was, you know, it was. And still today, you know, I, I talk about it in terms of addiction sometimes. About you know that I am both a recovering and a bona fide fishaholic. You know, the recovery part is the spiritual part of myself. And you know, I have a friend of mine named Paul. There's a lot of Pauls in my life. You know, which which we'll get to later but you know he's my my go-to fishing pal and uh he sometimes will make you know make fun of of my spiritual sort of approach to fly fishing when he sees you know how rabid I can get when you know it, it, we're going after you know some big browns or something and and uh no, so I have that too it's just I use that um I use that knowledge of my um propensity to do things addictively now to you know, just to relax and to see that, you know, uh, life isn't necessarily about the material reward. And what's funny is, and I don't want to wax too philosophical here, but I think that the world is experiencing that as a whole right now with the pandemic. And um, I believe that this, this is a time, and, and I think it's uncanny in a way that the book is coming out when the pandemic is happening, you know, it, because this sense of, of loss that um, we all have on some level of, you know, either it's a lifestyle that we used to have or, that, you know, it could be a loved one. Um, obviously, anybody listening is, is, hasn't lost their life, but some, I'm sure, have come close, like my brother-in-law. And and I think that that's the piece to me that is so intriguing about fly fishing is that we we have both of those things. You know, we have the that material effort to try to go out and get something, but it's really not... As much as as we all want that big fish it, it's it's really it's really the process to me of doing it because we could take i say to some of my clients who are new, you know never done the sport, I say, you know if you wanted to and I've done this with an electric prod, you could throw an explosive device in the water or shock these fish, and they'll just come up float up, and you can net them right well, you know but that's not what we're doing we are you know we we, we have created this as an art form, that's how I look at it. And it's a way of reminding ourselves that the challenge is in the process. It's not necessarily just the getting. And so I think that's that's how I see what's going on now is we really have to reevaluate the way that we see the world. Um, and I think that this virus is sort of reminding us of our mortality and reminding us of what's important.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Uh, John, we need to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll we'll talk about how you started getting paid in the fly fishing industry, so to speak. So hang with us, folks, and we'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing, and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pangas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jackraval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with John Deach about fly fishing and the transformative power of nature. If you'd like to ask John a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So John, um, so you started at a, a young age, fishing and fly fishing and... How did you uh, transition into uh, you know getting paid? I mean, did, did it start out with guiding? Is that your your first break into the industry, or, or what was? It?
1: Well, that's really that's, that's an interesting question. You know, I skied on the ski team at the University of Colorado. Uh, once uh, I matriculated there as a freshman, and was on uh, on the B team there uh, for two seasons, and then I ended up coaching. And then my uh, my fourth year. My senior year, I ended up uh, ski instructing in Aspen, Colorado. My parents had a second home. And you know, it, it's had to, see I've lived a blessed life in that way. And I'm very aware of that, especially now with everything that's going on. But it, when I was there, um, as a ski instructor, I also uh, was involved with the um, racing events. Um, and we put on this thing called, Texas Ski Week, I think it was called. And it was three World Cup ski racers and myself. I never made it to the World Cup. I don't think I even got quite close. But I was a late bloomer too. I didn't really start training until and I didn't start ski racing until I was probably 12. But Andy Mill was part of that uh, cadre of coaches and we became fast friends. And uh, and I think it was that summer or the summer after that, you know, he taught me to nymph. Actually, it was in March, I take that back. It was about this time of year or you know, May. well, April. And uh, not only did he, did he um how to nymph, that, the next winter he asked me to um, help him make his television series for ESPN. It was called Ski with Andy Mill. And for those of you who do not know Andy, Andy is a five-time Gold Cup winner, probably the best tarpon fisherman in the world, and has written a book John, called Tarpon. In fact, uh, and,
0: John, I did interview uh, uh, Andy about uh, tarpon fishing, so people can look him up on the Oh, our awesome.
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Mildy and I fish, we fish pretty much every year and still and stay in touch and speaking of mentor, you know, Andy was my mentor and not only was he my mentor, uh, for, you know, for, for uh, fly fishing for uh, trout and nymphing in particular, he was also the one to introduce me to the outfitter, George Odier, who I mentioned before, at, you know, from Father and at the same time, I was writing, I started to write articles uh, for the local magazines and uh, wrote an article about Georges. Georges is because he had a French accent. And, uh, and at the same time, Andy gave me my first job in television doing those, those shows, as I mentioned, and I ended up writing my first television script. So, you know, I can either blame Andy for my career or again, be blessed by it. And it's been a, a, a wonderful journey.
0: And so, um, tell us about um, some of the fishing, fly fishing productions you worked on, and you know what you did. If it wasn't writing, was it other things that you did? Right.
1: Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I was always into doing outdoor sports related uh, productions, and it really started with Andy. You know, doing Ski with Andy Mills. So I, I was sort of known for doing um, outdoor sports related uh, content. And I got hired at uh, Powder Magazine, which also did Surfer Magazine, and uh, worked there until the recession, I guess it was in 90. And I was sort of the the first, the last one hired, so I was the first one fired, as they say. And, you know, for anyone out there that just got fired um, or laid off because of of what's going on, keep in mind that because of the fact that I was no longer working this dream job which I thought was like you know the perfect place for me I ended up finding out that Patrick Markey who was a family friend was making this foot you know actually want to go back that in that in that same frame of time uh I had been attached to uh Tom Cohen's production of uh well, The River Why, and he had a script that he had, op- he had optioned the rights to Duncan Hill's beautiful book, and I was planning to work with him because I was, at this time, I was a filmmaker, having done all these different shows, and I'd done a bunch of other projects as well, and uh, I got a phone call one day from Tom saying, you know, I'm really sorry, John, we were going to go into production, I think it was six weeks. And he called, you know, from the time he called, and, and he said, um, "I'm really sorry, but all of my investors have pulled out." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, because Redford announced that um, he's going to be making a river runs through it." And uh, so that was that. And then, it, then serendipity had it that I ended up finding out that Patrick was the producer of that project. And, you know, for me, serendipity, and not to bring, you know, uh, too much religion into this, but I, when, I, when I use the word God, if I do use God, it's really about spirit of the universe. You know, it, but that, I believe that that's the way of the universe remaining anonymous or God or spirit, because there's all those coincidences took place. I still think that today, I mean, I've said this, you know, I believe that I actually called a wrong number at Columbia Studios and somebody picked up, it was Karen Hughes, who ended up being the production coordinator on, on River Run Through It, and, and you know, just started a conversation with her, and that's how I found out that Patrick was the producer. So I went in and, and that was the first, um, you know, other than fooling around with a can you know, camcorder you know, in the private reservoirs where the fish were spawning in, in places that probably we weren't allowed to be, I won't get into that gorilla fishing aspect, but you know that's <laughs> all. That's the only other thing I've done you know, is it's just you know screwing around with a camcorder. And I'd always been in my head to do some kind of fishing something. You know, I'd done a bunch of stuff with surfing and we did not have mountain biking then, but we had stuff like it. Uh, you know, and uh, a lot of different outdoor sports-related content over the years. But never fly fishing, and it it just came up, and suddenly there I was. In the right place at the right time and perhaps you don't want to go into the stories of river runs through it but that's really how i got started and all the other productions i've done came out of that you know and so that what happened on that was pretty interesting is that i i called patrick and i went in and i kind of bullshitted to be honest with you because i really hadn't completely read a river Through It, but i knew i knew about it and i perused it and it, it was just such a powerful story and uh and he said, well, look, John, great, great. Thanks for coming in and talking to me. But, no, I think we're going to use Orvis because they're going to do it for free. And I thought to myself, and I, I can be pretty fast on my feet. And I said, well, Patrick, you know, does Orvis know how to make films? Because I have a filmmaking background as well as being a, a guy in the fly fishing. And he said, well, let me think about it. And so I um, And we had another meeting, I think it was in between. But the last time I went in, I decided, someone had told me about a pitch they had done an advertising agency where they had you know gone in with scuba gear and so i just put on my i didn't put on my waders but i put on my uh maybe i did put on my waders that's kind of embarrassing you yeah, know i went in with a with a fishing vest and i brought in pictures from alaska and i got patrick really excited about fishing and i looked the part and i ended up offering me the job in a paid position on the on the film and so that's really how i how i ended up getting into the to the world of filming and and fly fishing uh, combined. And and it was sort of, you know, at the top, you know, and and, uh, it really is. I mean, I think to this day, I don't think there's ever been a, you know, a a project quite like a River runs through it. And, in fact, I I saw the other day that it's still considered one of the top, if not the top, outdoor films of all time. So I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that I was able to, you know, be in charge of all those fly fishing scenes.
0: Let's talk about um, your role during that, because that was very interesting to me, reading your book, um, you know, Grace by Waters, you go into to that a bit. Uh, and, and there were other people involved, too, like the Borgers. Uh, I, I think you told me Jason Borger, some of the casting. But uh, tell us what role you played, because it, it wasn't just writing. It was uh, some practical things on the river and, and so forth. So why don't you go into that a little bit?
1: Sure. It's funny that you say that because I I'm going to do a little backing up myself. Um, I happen to have correspondence with Jack Dennis today, and who I've known for a long time. And you know he's coming out with a new show, I think. And we were just talking, and he sent me an article um, that was written. I don't know where it's from. It's just, it doesn't have the name of it, but it's written by John Bailey. And he says here, you know, John Bailey with Three Generation Montana and his father of Dan Bailey, he says here, I was pleased when John Beach, the fly fishing coordinator for the movie, called and asked if I would like to be involved in the movie. And so John was really one of our advisors and, and uh, you know, a key advisor, of course. And being being from California, having somebody... From Montana was of essential importance because, if you might recall, in the in the story, river runs through it. Uh, Norman is very vocal about his dislike for Californians, <laughs> and here I was a Californian, uh, you know, being in charge of all the fly fishing scenes. So, you know, with the way it sort of went down is that they realized they needed somebody in California, you know, here in Southern California, that could teach the actors, you know, how to cast. And initially, that was what I did: was to take those guys out into the park and, you know, and teach them to wade. You know what it was like to, to sort of walk in water and uh, up to Malibu Creek. You know what a lot of people don't realize is that we actually still have a, an ancient um, run of steelhead in the creeks here in Southern California. Um, they're extremely, extremely endangered and we don't like to talk about it even so i'm not I'm sure we're supposed to do that. but you know it they're still coming up especially up in uh although they, they've had a real you know the, the drought has been tough they've had some some terrible floods uh, up and down but there are there there are trout in and around where we are especially at, um uh, in the san Bernardino and san gabriel mountains so we do have fishing and um but we didn't at that time there's a terrible drought as i recall and what I did end up taking when one of my fond stories was um, taking Brad Pitt out to, uh, you know, to for his first fly casting instruction in a little park nearby here, at my home. And, uh, and at some point along the way, I decided I'd show off a little bit, and I just started kind of messing around. And, and I, I, what I was doing was kind of a longer cast. And then I was coming through, you know, I, was a, I was doing a reverse cast, and then coming through underneath and doing what Jason later, you know, identified as a pendulum, you know, and so I was doing this kind of just messing around, and Brad Pitt looks at me and he goes, the shadow cast. And that's really how that shadow cast was developed for, you know, in its very, you know, embryonic stages. And it turns out that we there was no real description other than the very light description that McLean had wrote in his in his um, book about the cast, and actually John McLean, who is actually coming out with a, a, a new book, uh, which I don't want to go into because I don't know if it's been talked about. But that's the son of of Norman. Uh, he actually later said that that there was actually you know he kind of everyone seemed to have an idea of what this thing was, and it was the first time in that in the making of that film that you know we had to wade through just on unbelievable amount of information to really come down and decide what, how we would depict something. But, you know, in in the case of the actors, you know, we, we, you know, that was the first thing I did. And then I went to uh, Bozeman and um, I went, I always go back and forth, but this is now probably in March. And we, they really wanted to, to know where they were, where we would shoot the fly fishing scenes. And I had identified with a location manager who was from New York and had never fly fished, let alone really been out in the. In the I think it was Laurie Baldwin. It, it, God bless her, and uh, not a real much of an outdoors person, but certainly a really really qualified location manager. And we went up on the Boulder River, and then a guy by the name of Jim Belsey, who was one of the head guys at TU there, um, who was a friend of my my father's and and. Uh, and the Lockies were friends of mine. Ended up, you know, I contacted him, and he took us up on to the Gallatin, and uh, there by Squaw Creek. And it was it was funny because I got a phone call at uh, probably about four thirty in the morning, and, and from Jim saying, uh, "John, have you looked outside," and I knew that there had been a um, you know that winter storm warning, and uh, it was blizzarding, and it had snowed three feet. And he uh, says, so "I assume we're not going out, right?" And and so I called Patrick, and Patrick's like, oh. <laughs> Patrick was like, "I got a suburban. We're going." And Jim, Jim, you know, God bless him, he, he passed away uh, about ten years ago now. But he, you know, he got in the car with us, and we drove through, you know, all this snow out onto uh, the highway that went up into uh, the canyon, you know, the uh, Gallatin Canyon. And literally, we we saw the. You know, I had already. Scouted the Blackfoot River, and um, along with Patrick and Redford, and the production manager Laurie, and uh, you know several other people, including Paul Roots, who I'd met with, and was an outfitter um, there. And he's just a wonderful guy. We made a determination that it was not a good idea to try and do the uh, fishing scenes on the river where the story had been written. And you know, I guess we're making a big assumption. Everyone knows here so I'll stop for a moment unless you only you know that everyone knows what the story is about a river runs through it so I don't know do should I go back Paul I'm sorry would you like me to go back Roger
0: and um, no, talk you know a little bit about um, the story um, well let's just uh, I'd like to uh, I mean if you can do it briefly I'd like to for you to share you know your actual involvement like I said um, sure yeah well, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah you I, were I have Great. If people they, haven't seen I, the movie, yeah, I, shame on them. Go <laughs> <I don't laughs> get it. <laughs> you
1: know what? Let, let's go. But, let's go with that, Roger. I like that. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, if you haven't seen the film, see it. It's about two brothers, and it's really a coming-of-age story in a large to a large degree in terms of one brother really coming to terms with the passing of his younger brother, who. You know, for all practical purposes, was an addict of some time, you know he, he was addicted to gambling and probably an alcoholic and uh, but a wonderful guy. And it was really a way of honoring his spirit. And spirit's a big word there because you know the beginning and end of that film was the old man, Norman McLean, uh, being depicted as you know uh, looking back in time and remembering his brother and, and and remembering him with a with a modicum of perfection. Which he knew just didn't didn't really exist in the real world, but in memory, you know, perfection, you know, can exist. And it's a way of us working out, I think, our grieving too, to see that, you know, as imperfect as we are, you know, this is this is perfection because it's it's the moment that we have in life, uh, you know, and we have to accept all those those foibles. We really want to be alive, and so it's just a beautiful beautiful story. And and uh, so I had the opportunity to go down and scout the Blackfoot. And what I found, what I found, uh, along with some other people who were helping us to to make the determination of where to shoot, what what I found was that the uh, the Blackfoot was really suffering from so many things: uh, mining, which is still you know still it's still uh, threatened up there, mining, uh, clear cutting, in terms of logging, and also cattle grazing, you know, it, it, which it had. Um, the cattle grazing, as a lot of you know, it, it um, you know, deteriorates the banks, and the, and the banks will um, create siltation along with the, the clear cutting, and uh, and cause uh, serious problems with the spawning of the trout, which which for the brown trout happens in in this part of the hemisphere, this part of the, this longitude. Uh, you know, in uh, the browns are are uh, spawning in the in the fall, and the um, uh, rainbows in the, in, the, in the late winter and in early spring, and uh, it, it just it decimated that kind of development. And that it, you know, there's also development. So unfortunately, we could we made a determination that we wouldn't be able to um, do the fishing scenes there. And at the time, I had no idea. I mean, I was 29 years old, and I had no idea how we were going to do those scenes. You know, I mean, the, the you know, we were thinking about maybe doing it with tanks and big you know freshwater tanks in terms of doing the shooting and over time it you know it developed into how we, we actually did it and so I'm talking a little bit about the scouting here and I think I can get into you know the, there's different aspects of it you know there's the the props and the and the, um, the it's called the costuming as well as the um, the flies like the bunion bug and the um, all the other flies that george Krunenberg, which he's mentioned in the book and in the film and he was on the set and he was really a, a big part of he used to write me letters and it's to this day one of the travesties of my ADD or whatever i want to call it that i lose things but you know i he wrote me letters every week and addressed them to me and said you know john we want to make sure that you know the and it was beautiful handwriting know this is again, a lost part. you know I, I just regret that I wasn't able to keep those. Someday I fantasize I'll find them. but there are these beautiful letters that he would write about the casting technique. and he described that you know um, Norman, you know would never chop wood, you know, which is that stiff kind of motion that you know in some ways, that's what Brad Pitt ended up fishing like a little bit because we only had a little bit of time to really get him to to um, learn how to look like he was an expert flycaster. but uh, you know, and he, he gave me all sorts of insights into uh, all sorts of things in terms of the way that the brothers fished. Now, one of them was interesting, and, and this is a story I'd like to tell. I actually tell it in in my book. Uh, let me take a sip of water here. Hmm. It was about the actual rods, and we uh, hired a guy by the name of Lynn Cadella to help us. Um, identify and find you know and source the kind of bamboo rods that uh, that uh, Norman and his brother and his father would have been fishing with and again this is painstaking you know that that because we knew this was the Holy Grail of fly fishing uh, we wanted to do it right and uh, I can get into the to the whole uh, Gary and Jason part of it in a moment but this is really before they were even brought on and what uh, before I, I reached out to Gary, uh, and I'll get into that. But the the um, the insight that we had was that they would have used what we called a, uh, well, let me we say it like this. We knew the coloration because it was described in the book. And by giving the coloration to Lynn Cadella, I figured that he would know what a Montague fly rod was because it's it, that's what george prunenberg said they used was a montague and len said he'd never heard of such a thing so um he started to research it and it started to get kind of panicky because you know patrick started to say okay john what are, you know, what are we doing and i said well we still can't figure out what what this thing what these rods were well we we knew that's what what norman fished with and we figured well Brad was probably Brad. I'm sorry, the Brad character. So Paul, his younger brother, would likely have used the Granger, uh, which was a, a more expensive rod. And uh, what we ended up doing is, I, I ended up getting a call from Lynn, and I panicked about you know, the fact that we didn't have the rod that actually Norman and his father would use, which was which Dirk over to you. He said he called and he said, "John, you're not gonna believe this." I said, "What?" He said, "I figured out what it is." I said, well, "What? What? It would've oh, been like three weeks." And he said, "You know what? Those guys called it a Montague, but in the fly fishing world, they're called Montags." And I was like, "Oh my God! Look at the word, the spelling of it." I'm like, "Okay, well, yeah, that makes sense." You know, so for a long time we didn't know, but so so we ended up sourcing some you know some Montags that were I think if I'm not mistaken that. I want to say it was a Wright McGill rod, and and anyhow, what was cool about that was also, you know, when we when we and I, you know, here I was a fishing guide since I was probably about 22, so I'd been guiding for about seven years, but I had very little experience with, uh, if maybe no experience with uh, class, well, a little bit, you know, with classic fly rods, and you know, I knew that they used silk line and they used reels. So I figured they were like flugers. And such, and uh, so I didn't know a lot about this. And when I cast the darn thing, it was like the most clunky contraption I've ever cast. Because of course we've been fishing with—I've um, been using Scott rods and still do. You know, Scott's been a, uh, my my go-to rod forever. And you know, fishing with that with that graphite is you know uh, just a whole different experience. And actually, I have a story in my book about that, which I won't get into, but where I bring in this whole fly rod thing from the movie. And what we ended up doing is I knew that uh, Walton Powell, who became a good friend of mine and who I fished with after, was making this, this rod called a hexagraph, which was six-sided. And it really, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, emulated the, the look of a bamboo fly rod. And so we had replicas made for the actors and for Jerry scene who ended up doing a lot of the casting as well as is uh, myself and jason although uh, i didn't really ever you never saw my cast because they weren't nearly as beautiful as, as uh, jason and, and jerry i just did a lot of the handwork. although george kronenberg did at one time believe that after seeing me cast that i cast just like norman and he had advocated for me to do it but when we saw jason cast it was just like wow both Jason Borger and Jerry Seen are just amazing casters. But going back to the graphite, you know, we wanted something that was a little faster action, you know, but not too fast in terms of looking like it wasn't a bamboo rod. But we could get, we felt we could get a better loop, and it would just be easier on the actors who also had to do some casting as well. So we ended up actually using the bamboo rods only in the close-ups and in the actual casting. We used the replica rods so that we could get a longer, more beautiful-looking cast. And we also um, changed out the silk lines for what uh, Bruce Richardson, at ran created for us, which you see all over now. And if I'm not mistaken, there were no orange lines before River Runs Through It. And and I'm sure that, okay, there probably were, but no one was really using them. And Mm -hmm. Bruce made this beautiful line that, that caught the backlight. And we went and tested it quite a bit with the, with the 35 millimeter cameras because we shot those we shot river runs through it on 35 Which no one's doing today and hardly nobody was doing it you, know, it you know 25 years ago. So, it was sort of at the end of, of its life cycle. So that's a little taste of of That yeah. part and
0: uh, yeah, trivia. I could get and you the also had to bus. go out You also had to go out and get uh, fish for, for the shooting too, right? I mean
1: well, yeah. Not only did I have to get the fish, but you know, and I, and I'll get to that in a minute. But one of the unique things, you know, there's three things I want to talk about. If you can kind of hold me to task, is the fish, also the insects, and also the first casting casting calls, and maybe the only uh, that have ever been uh, you know made. We had casting calls for people to come in and, and, and cast, um, uh, and I'll get to that as well. But but i'd like to start with the insects before i get into the fish because we there's a scene is where norman you know gets hit on the back of the head with a on the back of his neck with, a, with a, a a big you know salmon fly big stone fly and we knew that we needed to have those insects so jason and i would go out and collect you know salmon flies when we knew that they were hatching either on the yellowstone or or perhaps if we were doing some scouting over on the on the Gallatin or what have you. And as you know, they all are coming off at a little different time, depending on the river. And uh, this was probably starting in mid-June and going into, and uh, we got a cold spell at one point where I went and I did a bunch of uh, camera work with Peter Palafian up on uh, Madison, and it started to snow, and of course there was no hatch. And uh, I won't get into that, because that was where I almost got fired, because there was since there's no hatch, I did get some close-ups of stoneflies coming out of their husks. And when Redford saw it in the theater, it looked like it was out of a you know, Martian movie. <laughs> we burned a bunch of 35-millimeter, and uh, I, I got a little talking to you about that. But getting back to the, what I was going to say is that uh, what ended up happening was we Pushed the scenes from mid-July, which happens a lot in, in, in filmmaking. It was a three-month shoot, um, starting in June and then ending in, uh, in early June and ending in early September. And suddenly, they came to me and said, "We're going to do. We're going to move the fly fishing scenes to the end of the movie." But you can't because we're not going to have stone flies. And Patrick looked at me and goes, "Figure it out." I mean, just like that. I'll never forget it. And he walked away. So, of course, I called Joe Urbani, the fisheries biologist who, who um, I had met up there. And he, at that time, he worked for uh, he has his own company now, very successful. It's uh, called uh, It was called Interflu back then, of course. It was a big company where they make rivers for people in their private houses and stuff. And he was very, very uh, adept at, at uh, all things fish uh, and entomology, et cetera. And he said, don't worry about it, John. Just go collect them. You know, and he showed me how to do it with a jar and the you know the air holes on the top, and just like when you are a kid, he said just put them in the refrigerator. They'll last for two months. <laughs> of course, we lost quite a few, but it's uh, true. You know that the the uh, the, uh, the production came around and we got them warmed up and they're just as good as new. So that that insect you see you know, uh, in the movie where it, you know, hitting the back of his neck, that was me throwing it at, you know, at Craig Shepard's neckline, you know, and uh, it looks a little bit like, you know, some of the, one of those horror movies, but, you know, my wife will attest to that because she's been in some stone fine hatches and you know, yeah. stands she, with she uh, like, John, let's
0: Yeah, John, let's move on and tell us quickly about the fish so we can get to the, describe the final scene so we can talk about, the, a little bit more about your book.
1: Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, yeah, the fish, the, you know, we, we didn't know how we were going to do this thing. And I, I ended up, you know, meeting a guide up there, and God bless him, I don't know his name. And he took me on a, on a uh, float down of the East Skeleton and I caught a huge brown. I remember that. But he had been one of the guys who had taken uh, Larry, Larry McIntyre, the folks who did uh, fly fishing in the West, down and you know had seen how they did it and he said well what they do is they they tie up you know a uh, you know a bottle like a milk bottle or a orange juice bottle plastic bottle they fill it you know and and then that's the fish at the end of their line and they'll cut back to the real fish and the you know and, and I was like wow that's kind of cool and I was like oh yeah that's how we could do it so that was one of the things I picked up, and I bless that guy, and if he's listening, and you know, give me a shout, it's been a long time, and I appreciate it. And the next phase that we looked at was, well, how are we gonna get them, You know, how are we gonna do underwater filming of them, and how are we going to uh, get a shot above them taking a stone fly, that take a pattern of an of, of artificial? The bunion bug. Of course, the bunion bug was this bug that was made with horse hair and uh as wings and i can't remember the body now but it you know these beautiful flies i actually have a couple still um and uh that were made out of missoula by a guy named paul bunyan and uh of course now they're worth like a couple grand i think you know because of the film they've uh and, and the, uh, making the, the book so famous um they're almost impossible to come by and very expensive but they mine actually doesn't have a hook because we didn't we took the hook off you know for some of the scenes but what we did is, is, we went and we got fish out of a pond called the Watson Pond, it was a private pond. And these fish were those big fish you see in the film. That was part of the funnest part of my job is that I got to go and, and exercise those puppies. And, I'm, and then we put them into this little area um, that was cordoned off and you know, fenced it so that they couldn't get out, you know, where the, where the creek came in to the pond. And that was our sort of storehouse of fish. And then we had Joe Urbani, um, you know, uh, take his fish truck, pick those things up, you know, and then bring them up to the Gallatin. And of course, this is before whirling disease. And there's people who have said, oh, you guys would to start whirling disease now. I've, I've talked to the fisheries biologists up there who, who were from Montana, who worked with Joe and us, and we did not start whirling disease. But we, we did uh, truck them up to the Gallatin and put them in what we call fish pens and then we would test them because of the, of the requirements from the um, Humane Society. You know, we would use the same kind of anesthetizing bath that you use for uh, uh, to, to stun fish when you are doing a census. You know, when you're when you're going when were going out and doing a census of, of what I explained before, where people would shock the fish, and, and you know that's, that's what the fisheries biologists do. Well, that's what, what the sort of banning would do. We'd stun them and then we would put a needle up through their their jaw and then catch the bunion bug to the side or whatever bug we were going to be using in the scene and then um have a tether that went out from that thing and then we'd tie that thing up, um, throw the the fish in the water and then one of the actors would be on with it and that's how we would fish that. And then we would also, you know, for, for that that's what we call the A scenes, you know, in the in the uh what we call either the you know, the in the pickups, you know, we would go out with um with the second camera guy or this you know, second camera work. And we would do the inserts and this is all storyboarded and it was really storyboarded based on what Jason and I did I mean, uh, you know, uh, Redford gave me the the uh, you know, Delegated this the scenes to me in terms of how to uh, how to envision them and uh, You know, Jason was a great artist, So we spent you know days and weeks Going over all the scenes in terms of how how they should look and then Redford flew out in his helicopter and we went through all the different locations and and then um you know that's that's how we did that, it, and then he changed a lot of it, of course. Bradford did, and then we had the, the one scene that we needed to do, and that sort of gets into the. Um, well, actually, it's not in that scene, but there were four big scenes that we had to do, and um, a couple other little ones, but you know, having to do with fly fishing. And uh, the big thing was, how are we going to get this fish to take a stone fly on the surface? And that's what we. That's where Fernando, the fabulous fish, came in which was a mechanical fish that Gary Borger had brought in. I'm sorry, not brought in, had uh, sourced for us because he had used it to do his rise forms uh, video for uh, 3M, I think it was Scientific Anglers. And we used Fernando. We shot this Fernando for three days to get one shot, literally. So there is a shot in the film. You have to go out and find it, which is yeah, where it um, you know, it's block. actually yeah. a – Yeah, it's actually – One of those takes from the surf, you know, looking down at it is is this fly, you know, this uh, mechanical fish come up and taking the fly. So that's a little bit about that. And um, I guess, yeah, we can maybe talk about the um, – there's so many things. but you just talk about that that.
0: final scene on how that that came about, because that was your idea, right? Uh, You proposed that to Redford? It was. Yeah.
1: It was. How that really came to fruition was uh, that – on a rainy day, I was out and got a radio call. I was out scouting some you know, river location near Bozeman and saying, you know, hey, you, you know, we're, we're, it's called a cover set. And they were starting to do some stuff that were, you know, second unit, uh, so they didn't need Redford and uh, because it was raining in Missoula. So I was called in for an impromptu meeting. But I had worked on these scenes in the storyboard and storyboarding probably for, I don't know, four months. And Redford really hadn't even looked at him yet. And um, it, it was all but the last scene. So I went in and I, you know, it's, it's in, it, that story is, is in both Shadow Casting and uh, reprinted in, in Grace by Waters. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I was nervous and I ended up not having my notebook because I had left it in Livingston. So I had a PA bring it. Of course, the main meeting started without the notebook with all the storyboards in it that Jason and I had worked steadfastly to get done. And it was, it was just Redford, myself, Patrick Markey, John Hutman, who was the designer and production designer, and then also the writer, Richard Friedenberg, and uh, who lives actually down the street And uh, and he will, att- you know, he's attested to the fact that this was my idea. What happened was I went through all the, the storyboards, and this was before Redford fly out, flew out, and went out and scouted our stuff, and you know, changed quite a bit of it, but. Uh, he said, you know, John, I, I know I haven't asked you to storyboard the, um, uh, the final scene, but, you know, in the movie, it's kind of a lot like the other scenes. You know, is there something we can do that, to make it more exciting? And, uh, you know, I looked at, at Patrick, you know, who was the producer, and I could tell he was kind of giving me a scowling look, but I couldn't. There's an adage in the production business, which is, you know, do what you need to do and then uh, beg for forgiveness. And so I just came up with this idea off the top of my head, and it was based on a friend of mine, Thomas Lockie, who had told me the story about him catching this big fish or hooking this big fish on the big hole and having to swim under a bridge in order to land it. And so I told it in third person as though it were were the Brad Pitt character. And I even talked about how his feet would start slipping and he'd come up on this eddy because he saw this fish that was on just the other side of this um, big rapid in in a pocket. And the only way he could really get a cast to it was to get right on that heavy line you know, because otherwise he wouldn't have a good drift. And uh, so, so I, I, I sort of set the whole thing up and I described it. And then it, and he finally gets out there. He's right against this edge and he casts out and he, and he's, and he sees it. And the fish loves it and he hooks it and then it starts taking off downstream and he has to decide what he's going to do. And he realizes that the only way he's able to catch fish is, is if he decides to swim or he'll break it off. And I just stopped like that. The Ripper looked at me. I'll never forget it. And he said, "And then what?" You know, and, and and that's when I knew that he had. You know, he, I had him like a fish, and you know? I was like, oh, "Fish on." <laughs> and uh, so he um, he was like, "Then what?" You know, and I was like, "Well, he swims down. And he almost drowns." And you know, it was funny because we never did have an ending to that scene. So, you know, if you look at what happened, we went out. And, and got a Hollywood stuntman to come in. Actually, the next day I went out and he said, "Do you know where you want to do this?" And I actually did, and I said, "Yes," which was up uh, up right just below where Squaw Creek comes in. And and I said, no, there's a rapid there. It's a Class Three rapid. It'd be perfect." So he said, "Well, take the the uh, river rescue crew and go out there." And he said, "You're not going to get hurt." I right. said, it? "No, you are fine." I said that, but I was a little freaked out, and I I ended up swimming that rapid with a, just a wetsuit. You no. Know, no knee pads, no what's, no um, you know life preserver anything like that, and you know showing how it would look if, and I still have have in fact there's there's still footage of me doing it, and uh, I went down that rapid with that technique that I told you about where he had a weighted bottle in front of me, and, and it looked good. And he loved it, and he said, yeah, let's do this, and that's so, so the writer Richard Friedman you know wrote it in, and um, they we brought a hollywood stuntman out to do it and he just didn't look like a fisherman didn't know what he was doing redford like the way i did it so i got tapped right into the union and the day of doing that stunt of course the whole office came out to watch me you know because now this guy has been behind the scenes he's gonna be in the movie and they wanted to watch me try to kill myself which i almost did but patrick i'm sorry uh philippe Rousselot. you know it's french and he had done the uh, the bear and they had done emerald forest uh you know he says to me john you know I'll, I've done these films all over the world and I've never killed anyone. Are you going to die? And I was like, no Patrick, I'm gonna be fine. I mean, Philippe, I'm gonna be fine. He said, okay, we do it five times. And I was thinking I was gonna do it once, you know? And so I had to do this thing five times. And the first time I did it, I had so many nerves that instead of, you know, hitting my mark, I went right underneath the camera, not 10 feet out, which is what, you know, Philippe wanted me to do. And you know, he thought i hadn't listened to him and maybe i hadn't listened very carefully you know and he just came running down at me at the end of that first run through with the rod and the weighted uh, bottle just you know tore me a new and so i uh i ended up doing it doing it again and that second time i did it jerry seen would put the bottle in and jerry who's now the rod designer for he was the rod designer for winston at the time um and that's a great story in itself is how i met him but uh, because he he came out and threw an entire fly line with his hands, showed me that he could. You know, I said, "Where's your fly rod?" You know, doing a casting casting call. I'd heard that he was one of the best fisher fly fishermen in the world. You know, in terms of his cast, and he uh, he threw an entire fly line, and that's and I hired him on the spot, um, and, and and that was through um, Roy Palm at. at uh, uh, Fly fishing anglers who give me that uh, that lead on, on Jerry. That over that summer, um, Jerry ended up leaving Winston and then ended up working for Sage as their rod, rod designer. Rod designer. He he puts the bottle into the river, and it goes into a crack. It's stuck, and I end up get you know trying to hold on to the rod, and it pulls me into a hydraulic, and I have to let go of the rod. And in that split second, I'm going almost backwards, and I go into this big hydraulic, you know, and it. And it pin, you know, pushes me down and, and you know, i down for a few seconds in a place I was not, that was not my line, you know. I was mm-hmm. not willing to go into this hole. And uh, I ended up, you know, popping up and, and I was freaked out and, uh, you know, Philippe was like, you okay, you okay? And I was thinking, shit, we're never going to get this. And the next three times I hit the mark and got mm-hmm. it and uh, we got it in the can. But it, was, it wasn't until, you know, post-production when they looked at it that they realized to really make it really dramatic, they would cut back to the uh, the brother and the son, Norman and his father on the bank. And then their POV would be of nothing because it would be like me, have, after I went into that hydraulic, not coming up for a while, right? And they really extended it. I was only down for maybe two or three seconds in the, in the movie, it must be like 10 or 15, you know, to, to create a foreshadow for the next scene, which is where If you haven't seen the film, sorry, we're going to blow it. But where he, for the (laughs) Paul, the Paul character is dead, right? And, 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 uh, yeah, that, that was not only me coming up with the idea, it was me making a mistake, right? And so it just goes to show you, you never know, you know, sometimes it's a mistake. It's like, it's like that person who didn't get on the plane flight and and is beating himself up and then that plane goes down, you know? Sometimes you just don't know,
0: you know? Well, well, John, we're running short on time, um. I know this was kind of a point in your life that uh, kind of gave you a different, different perspective on life and fly fishing. Um, yeah. Can you? You know, we don't have enough to cover everything I wanted to cover, but can you, you? You've got like 25 stories in your, you know, Graced by Waters book. All of them, you know, excellent and teaching moments. Uh, can we pick one of those and kind of finish off the night and talk about how how you know this moved you into, you know, uh, transformation. Uh, you
1: know through nature in your life. Yeah, and I you know, it's funny. I just I did a, I think I got a little a Little it, it, interesting that I'm sort of feeling like I got a little stuck in the past here But it is a it is such a great movie and it is such a tribute yeah. to Norman McLean that I, I'm glad I got to really talk in depth about it because I haven't really done that You know, I, I just haven't done it. I haven't felt the need to talk about how he made those scenes So now we've done that but you know, it's funny Roger and thank you for asking what happened was I saw the film as a rough cut. And oh, I get a little emotional even thinking about it still, you know, it 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 just it hit a chord that was so deep that I was pretty much incapacitated. I went back to my house and I was supposed to go back to work and I and I called in sick. And I was I was sick. I was sick with grief. And I was I was so amazed that I was able to work on a film that had that kind of message about life. My love of, of the river. And you know, people would come up to me and they would say, you know, I can't believe you worked in that film. That film changed my life. So and so passed away, and uh, I saw that film, and I ended up moving to Montana. Or, you know, I, I realized, you know, what spirit was, and that it was the nature. And now I'm, you know, I, I have to be in nature all the time. And what's amazing for me is living here in. On the outskirts of Los Angeles, and one of the largest megalopolises in the world, you know, I have self-diagnosed myself with nature deficit disorder, and it's actually a thing. It's it's actually um, written about in in a book uh, that I quote at the beginning of of, uh, *Grace by Waters*, a book by Richard Louv uh, called *The Last Child in the Woods*, uh, where he talks about uh, this. uh, disorder. It's also been called myophilia, which is the concept that we've always as human beings had this connection with nature and that only over the last 150 years have we replaced it with all of these images of and experiences of concrete and of, uh, and of urban, you know, urban nests. but that there's something in our soul, something in our brain that needs to have this connection and the visual connection And I think even the the sound of water for me, you know, I need to either hear the ocean or or the river almost on a daily basis. And otherwise I get depressed. And, uh, you know, clinical depression now is just a huge problem with the pandemic. And I've experienced it, you know, because I couldn't go down to the beach and I couldn't go up in the mountains because everything was closed. And so if I had any doubt about my need to be in nature and to connect with spirit it has come to full fruition with the pandemic. So my book is really about that connection. It's about my search for my higher power, you know, and and how I find that higher power in in waters. And it really emanated out of the the realization over time. And I think in that moment when I saw how powerful the film was, um, that I had been given this opportunity.
0: Yeah, and that's, um... I know in your book, like I said, almost each chapter, each story, uh, you, you, you connect to nature and how nature teaches you things about yourself. And I thought that was very interesting. Go ahead. Well,
1: it, it is, and, it, it, and it's, um, it is this connection. And what happened in that moment in the theater was I realized, um, you know, it, it, Norman's brother's name was Paul, and I lost my brother Paul when I was uh, 10 years old, and he was nine years old. We were in the same bunk bed our whole lives, you know, went, went through the out crib, and um, he had been born with seven heart defects. And so uh, that's the last story in my book, and it was uncanny that I didn't even realize while I was writing the stories in my book that the higher power that I was really talking about that spirit in the river was my brother's. And Norman said the same thing, really. He really, he he says in his beautiful, beautiful Pulitzer-nominated novella, A River Runs Through It, you know, that, you know, under the rocks are the words. And some of them are theirs. And to me, it's, uh, very evident that this is our ancestors, you know, it's our brothers, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, our, 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 our lost daughter. It's, it's the people who have gone before us. And when I, when I think about it, or when we think about it, and I, I say this to my clients when I'm guiding, you know, we will meditate before we fish, just for a couple minutes, just to let that sound sort of, uh, fill up our, our soul and, and uh, fill ourselves up and, and, uh, for them to see that this is what fly fishing is truly about, but there is something about the fact that water covers 70% of this planet, and that we are over 70% water ourselves as human beings. And there's something about immersing immersing ourselves into waters, particularly rivers, for me, and I think for most people on this on this. Uh, this broadcast, you know, there's something about being in water that is otherworldly if we allow it to be. And if we can take away that that addictive quality of wanting to get the fish and just sit down for a moment, which I have a hard time doing, guys, I mean, girls and women, you know, it's, you know, for for me, I've never taken a nap ever while I was fly fishing. And I aspire to that, right, because I, I have this addictive quality. But that addictive quality has allowed me to see that, you know, and and I am, you know, I'm a recovering, you know, I'm in recovery myself in terms of just, and I think the world is now really, in a way, we have to be, we have to, in order for us to recover something that we had, you know, it's what I'm talking about, you know, the river can teach us about that, that primordial sort of place of our connection, of where we came from, the source and uh norman was the first one that i ever read that really brought that to light and i know jack dennis and i were talking about it today and he agrees now this is this is a special story and i just feel so honored to have been part of it and you know grace by waters is my story but it is my it is it did grow up out of my connection to the film i really went through it and my work on it and that understanding that I had the honor of stepping into the promo, you know the proverbial uh, waiting shoes of Norman. He wanted to be in charge of the fly fishing scenes. He, he he said that publicly, and you know I'm just so you know again today it's you know this it, is almost 30 years ago if we, we shot the film. Like 30 years ago, 30 years next year. Um, it's still that uh, bigger than life part of my life, and I was just. Um, I was moved by by spirit by what Norman laid out in his book and in the movie that I helped to make. Um, yeah, there's um,
0: you know just gonna tie it's things up just powerful here. Powerful
1: stuff, man. I just that's all it that is. Just yeah. powerful stuff. I would, and, and I wanted to write, and then so that's why I've written the book. You know, it's,
0: so it's, maybe you
1: what you, what could, I,
0: yeah. you could close uh, close us out here with that uh, uh, that one co- quote you have in the preface. Um, no man ever steps. Can you say that?
1: Oh, sure. I, I'll, I can read maybe just read it. Uh, just tell me how, how just tell me when I should stop. I'll start reading a little bit of the preface. Yeah, if you'd like. I'd love to do that.
0: Um, uh, yeah, well, we're, we've only got about two minutes left. But um, okay. why don't you start with that second paragraph and just kind of read that? Sure. Cause that's kind of the, the gist of the, the whole thing, I think. So
1: Love to. Yeah. Yeah. The more I fly fish the more I discover its rich ability to boil down life's most complex problems into the simplest of truths. Like life, the river is constantly changing. As Heraclitus said around 500 BC, no man ever steps into the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he is not the same man. Stepping into the river is indeed a unique moment each time, filled with anticipation and promise. Nothing ever stays the same. Norm MacLean, author of the novella, A River Runs Through It, wrote, Under the rocks are the words, and some of them are theirs. These are the voices of our ancestors, and if we learn how to listen, they can transform our hearts. A
0: lot, a lot said in that paragraph, a lot said. Well, hang well, with I, us I, here, John. Uh, thank you for, for being with us, but it, it's not over yet. We're going to give away that, that beautiful book you wrote, Grace by Waters. And uh, if you can just hang tight, we'll uh, we'll do that and give a few other gifts away tonight uh, and finish things up. Sound good? Great.
1: Thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate okay. the opportunity to share my love.
0: Yeah, stick with me. Um, So we're wrapping it up. We're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and we'll also be giving away a copy of John's latest book, Graced by Waters. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit savebristolbay.org forward slash tell president Trump. And, and you'll learn there how you can get involved and uh, help to preserve this fantastic fishery. So again, it's savebristolbay.org forward slash tell president Trump. And, uh, and you'll, you'll learn all about how you can help there. So just a quick reminder. Everyone, uh, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. If you can find a link on our homepage in the section under Tonight's Show that says, What did you think of this show? Just click on that, and then you can leave your comments there. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes. Uh, winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you did uh, register for Tonight's Show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show so you don't miss out on uh, winning some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to be part of and to support. Um, They do a lot in the way of conservation efforts, and and they are worldwide in in both freshwater and saltwater. So uh, check them out. Uh, Our winner for that is George Hall, George Hall in California. So, George, congratulations, and I know you'll you'll enjoy your membership. Um, Our second giveaway is a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. And they're a great publisher with all kinds of books on fly fishing, so check them out. And our winner for that is Rick Pangel Pangel, uh, in Colorado. So, Rick, congratulations on uh, winning that subscription as well. So, gentlemen, um, uh, enjoy, and uh, and uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure you will uh, enjoy those those uh, great uh, prizes. So, so now, uh, and I got so involved in your story, I, I got to come up with a question now, John. <laughs> uh, oh, this this could be a tough one, but um, let's see here, and if it doesn't work, I'll try another one. Uh, how old was uh, John when he was working on the film, starting the film and doing the, the stunt routine and all that? How old was he? So let's see. That might be a hard one because he only said it once. But uh, let's <laughs> <remember>, see <laughs> if you were uh, listening. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm refreshing uh, the queue here. It takes a minute before they actually hear us. There's a little delay, and then uh, for people to type in. And, um, well, I'll give a hint. That is that I wasn't
1: six years old, because that's the other age <laughs> I gave. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And if uh, um, if you don't, uh, if you're not, oh, hold on. it. Help if I was on the right screen here. No, you weren't thirty-six, were you? <laughs> that's a good guess. How about 29? Did someone get it? That's what somebody's guessing, 29. There you go. Okay, ding, 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 David ding, ding, Dillon. Ding, ding, ding. All right, David. Are And but guess I, where I, he lives? like David. He lives in Norman, oh, Norman oh, Oklahoma. I love it. <laughs> I knew you would.
1: That's so great. That is serendipity, like I said. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Serendip- yeah. Who would have thought That's that uh, Norman would anonymous. come up again, right? But um, well, yeah. congratulations, uh, David, and um, send me your um, your address. I have your name and your email address. I just need your shipping address so that uh, uh, so that John can send you out a, a nice uh, autographed book. So, um, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So, uh, thanks for paying attention and uh, thanks for for listening. So, and congratulations on on winning that book. So, great book, um, and we do have it. Uh, on our website, uh, since everybody else didn't win it, you can uh, click on, uh, go right there to the right of John's picture on our home page and click on uh, Grace from Waters and take you right to Amazon. You can pick it up there. So uh, uh, check it out. It's a great read. And uh, thanks, uh, John, for so much for, for being on my show tonight. It was quite a different show than we've done in the past, and I, I really enjoyed it. So uh, thank you.
1: Well, thank you. It was really an opportunity. Also, I just wanted to say, you know, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, I am going to be doing a book signing and raising money for Real Recovery, which is a, a um, outfit uh, that takes men who have cancer and terminal cancer out. I've been a part of that group uh, a number of times, and so if you want to reach out and uh, and want to be part of that, I'm happy to put you on the list.
0: Now, how do, you know, what like is your virtual, Instagram uh, address?
1: Well, I'm at Grace by Waters on okay. uh, Instagram or on uh, Facebook. I'm also okay. John Deitch, which is D-I-E-T-S-E-H. And I believe um, on Facebook, I'm Deitch.jong, Uh And it, my last name is spelled like Diet School without the O-O-L. <laughs> so hopefully you'll never forget it now. Uh, yeah uh, that's the best way to find me
0: and um, also, do you want to give out your website address for, for your
1: production? Sure, although right now I just I've gotten a little behind so I don't have the I don't have the uh, you can purchase shadow casting actually on my castle productions dot com site castle creek productions dot com and I right. will be having the
0: uh, link to, for the book there the new book probably by tomorrow. Yeah, good, good. Well, great. Well, thanks again, John, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Great. And last thing I just want to say is uh, I, if anybody wants to come up and fish in Aspen, I will be guiding there again, my 10th season in a row out of Aspen uh, outfitting. And uh, thank you so much, Roger.
0: Sure. You're welcome. Well, hopefully uh, you've all found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look. For the link on our top line menu, the podcast archive. Go in there and you'll find over 315 shows now. Uh, you can search by keyword, keyword phrases like trout, tarpon, Madison River, things like that. And uh, go ahead and explore. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you'll, you'll discover. And there's so much to learn out there. It's, it, it's just wonderful. Um, our next podcast will be on June 3rd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show I'm going to interview Debbie Hansen. And our topic for the show will be fly fishing Florida's largemouth bass. Debbie is a professional guide in Southwest Florida specializing in getting her clients hooked up with the Florida strain of largemouth bass. These bass are different than the strains in the north and many consider them the monsters of largemouth bass. Listen in to learn how these bass and about these bass and how to hook up with what may be your trophy bass of a lifetime. We'd also like to thank uh, Fly Fishers International, Motto Books, Douglas Outdoors for sponsoring our show tonight. And uh, don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Whoops.